Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to Learning Curve. It's the podcast of the Health and Human Services Department's uh, Public Affairs Office. I'm Michael Caputo, the Assistant Secretary for Public Affairs here at HHS. And uh, I have the great pleasure of learning all about healthcare and the response to the coronavirus from the nation's experts. I'm surrounded by them here in Washington, D.C. Uh, I'm really quite impressed by the array of experts that the president has uh, put together in uh, public health. But at the same time, uh, we were caught, of course, by this COVID virus. And here we have this group of people who are really quite incredibly good at their jobs in really key places. Um, and I, I just wanted to introduce you to each and every one of them. I've interviewed uh, Secretary Alex Azar. I've interviewed uh, NIAD Director uh, Dr. Tony Fauci. Uh, even talked to uh, Dr. Peter Marks, who's the chief regulator, who's going to be deciding on the vaccines that are coming out of Operations Warp Speed. We've talked to Monsif Slawi, the senior advisor of Operation Warp Speed, and and. Uh, and that learning curve for me has been a vertical leap, and I hope I'm helping you understand the people behind the president's coronavirus response, the people here working for Secretary of Health and Human Services, Alex Azar, and the work that they're doing to, to respond to this, this pandemic. And today uh, on the, the, the Learning Curve podcast, I'm going to be talking to Rear Admiral Michael Wiaki. Uh, I'll tell you, the Rear Admiral is the head of the Indian Health Service, and uh, it's something that I knew nothing about when I came here. I can't wait for you to hear from uh, Rear Admiral Wiaki. We'll be, uh, I guess, right back in one second. Again, here we are with... Rear Admiral Michael Wiaki. First of all, I want to say thanks to Timmy Z and the Timmy Z Band for providing their original music behind the uh, Learning Curve podcast. Great rhythm and blues guitarist I've known for many, many years. A Buffalo guy. Nothing like Buffalo blues. Uh, I wanted to, uh, first of all, thank Rear Admiral Michael D. Wiaki, uh, who is the uh, the head of the Indian Health Service. Uh, thanks a lot for joining us. Uh, thank you, Mr. Caputo. It's a pleasure to join you. Well, I, you know what? I don't really know each other very well. I'm, uh, you're so busy with this very far-flung organization, the Indian Health Service. I know you're on the road. When I attend these meetings, you're mostly calling in because you're on the road a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I don't think the, the American people understand what the Indian Health Service is, and they don't understand much about the rear admiral who leads it. And, you know... I think uh, uh, people don't understand uh, also what your what your duties are. Your but your background is very interesting. You're an enrolled member of the Zuni tribe, and as the director of the Indian Health Service, uh, you lead this agency within the United States Health and Human Services Department. It's the principal federal health care advocate and provider of health care services for American Indians and Alaska Natives. That's a pretty big deal. That's right. Well, uh, and it is very much an honor to be entrusted with this responsibility, being a member of the community myself. uh, It's a a sacred trust. So I I very much enjoy my job and the places that it takes me. I I get to see the bottom of the Grand Canyon. I get to see islands in Alaska. I get to travel all over the country uh, to some of the most beautiful spots. Well, we know that some of the the scenery and the and the beauty on these reservations, Native American reservations, is just indescribable. But it's also 
uh, some of the you know the underserved communities that live on those reservations, they they have a lot of requirements that you need to attend to. In fact, you know that very personally, don't you? Uh, my understanding is you were born at an uh, IHS hospital in uh, New Mexico. Is that true? That's right, uh, Shiprock, New Mexico, which is uh, northwest corner of uh, New Mexico on the Navajo Reservation. Although you noted, I'm a member of the Zuni tribe. I was born on the Navajo Reservation, and uh, that's home. Is that like, like being from Michigan and being born at Ohio State's hospital? <laughs> <laughs> Something like that, yes. <laughs> well, you know, uh, and, you've, and since you've been working in the Indian Health Service, have you been back to Shiprock? I have, in fact, uh, just recently, uh, probably three months ago, I had the opportunity to go and see the Shiprock Hospital's COVID-19 response, thank the staff on the front lines for the hard work, uh, really hear directly from them the, their challenges and uh, what they're facing. Uh, but the most important purpose of that visit was to thank our frontline staff uh, for the hard work that they're doing over now seven months of COVID response. Yeah, and, and the Native American community has really been disparately hit by that. I want to talk about that in a minute. But did you actually grow up on the reservation? I grew up in a border town just off of uh, the Navajo Reservation in uh, Farmington and Aztec. So it's uh, um, literally 20 miles from from the border. And uh, growing up on the border town, I did receive all of my health care growing up in the Indian Health Service facility. Uh, so uh, you get a different flavor being just off than, than being directly on, but uh, still uh, very much... Uh, uh, different upbringing. What uh, what did your what kind of a life did your parents give you? What what did your parents do? Well, we were transient. My father was in oil and gas, and so we traveled quite a bit, uh, f uh, doing seismograph work um, and uh, a lot of oil fields in that region. Uh, so we we would move around two to three different schools in a year. Uh, it gave me wow. the ability to be uh, flexible and meeting new people and. And uh, being open, you wouldn't be able to tell that as I'm normally pretty quiet and reserved, but uh, I tend to be able to plant myself and, and uh, uh, adjust. Focus, yeah. yeah. But at the same time, you had brothers and sisters as you grew up? I did. So I've got two younger brothers, um, one working in oil and gas now in Houston, and the other is also an IHS employee really? uh, working in the Phoenix area. And that's where you rose in your career. First of all, you, you, uh, I understand you're a big Arizona State University fan. Oh, that's right. Your I'm alma mater. Flash up my pitchforks there. <laughs> big Sun Devil fan. And uh, did your uh, brothers also? Uh, are they they grew up in, uh, in the Phoenix area as well. Uh, mostly in New Mexico, okay. and um, since but they, then, but they, your your brother's in Phoenix now. He is. Yeah, he eventually migrated and followed the the rest of the family, uh, and then of course the middle brother is the one who headed off down south uh, for the Texas oil fields. Yeah. <laughs> well, I I, I got to believe you have a master of health services administration and a master of business administration from Arizona State University. Um, did you do those one after the other? I actually did them concurrently. You did. There was a dual program that worked out just right for me. My undergraduate work was in healthcare management, so the master's in health administration seemed like the natural fit. But uh, uh, once getting in, I saw that uh, the business aspect was equally important. It is, especially as an administrator. And 
And, but you, you can't. How long have you been with the public health service? Now, ladies and gentlemen, you, I don't. I, I didn't know this until I arrived at the building. But there are thousands of men and women who serve in the public health service, the uniformed, commissioned officers, doctors and nurses and elsewise. And they are all throughout the building here on Independence Avenue in Washington. And I, my first day, I got on an elevator I, on my way up to have my uh, first uh, uh, walkthrough on my new office. And there was Surgeon General Jerome Adams in the in the elevator uh, in his full regalia. The, the, how long have you been in the public health service? It's a proud and long-standing tradition. Yes, well, for me, it's been 21 years. Are you serious? Yes, I sir. did not know that, sir. And uh, was fortunate uh, to have been enlisted in the U.S. Air Force prior to that uh, for four years. So I got to add those two together, and I'm now uh, getting close to my 25th year. We got to keep you around. No time for retirement now. Not certainly not during COVID, huh? It goes by fast. It does. It does. <laughs> what was it like? Why did you choose the public health service? One thing I've noted from all the people I see in uniform here, and those in the uh, the the public health service in the uh, commissioned corps, is that they're so incredibly proud of it. It's like it's like you're a marine, but even more. Uh, especially when I talk to Admiral Jouar and others, they talk about the proud and longstanding tradition. Yeah, well, definitely the ability to serve your own people, uh, to um, provide service. Uh, our core values in the public health service are leadership, service, integrity, and ec excellence. Uh, but for me, it was natural, um, you know, after post military, and then obtaining my training. To, to be able to take that education and, and bring it back to the communities that we serve. So you're with the Indian Health Service all those years after the Air Force, after school? That's, yes, sir. That's been my only agency. Have you, and you've done a tour of the different hospitals, like you, with service in different places around the states? Uh, yeah, I've, I've definitely seen a good share of uh, our IHS facilities. We have 605 of them, so I've not uh, seen any of them by any reach of the imagination. But a pretty significant subset, for sure. <laughs> I, I see the, the IHS mission is to raise the physical, mental, social, and spiritual health of American Indians and Alaska Natives to the highest level. In fact, your agency, um, uh, part of HHS, provides a compre comprehensive health service delivery system for 2.6 million American Indians and Alaskan Natives who belong to 574 federally recognized tribes in 37 states. That's all hospitals, clinics, and health stations. That is a far-flung and important organization serving a very large number of Americans. And now they're more vulnerable than most to the coronavirus. After 21 years in this service, working at many different hospitals in the system, serving across the tribes, not certainly just not your own. This must be quite frightening for, uh, uh, for Native Americans. And I heard it's like 3.5 times more likely that you're going to be in, uh, uh, infected with the virus if you're a Native American. That's, that's significant. It is. It is scary, and different regions of the country have been impacted harder than others. Uh, the southwest, where I'm from, uh, unfortunately, has been impacted more significantly. Places like Navajo Nation, uh, White River, Arizona, Phoenix, Arizona, uh, we've really seen some, some high uh, positive case rates 
and unfortunately the um, related deaths that have come with this pandemic. Is there uh, also a higher death rate among Native Americans? We've not necessarily looked specifically at death rate. It wasn't until just recently that we began to to collect uh, racial demographic data. Uh, we do look forward to working with CDC on, on that analysis. But what we do know is that uh, American Indians are being hospitalized at a higher rate. Uh, you mentioned the 3.5% higher infection rate. We also have a, about a 5.3% uh, higher hospitalization oh, rate. Oh, no. Yes. Yeah, so it's... That's significant. Struck our communities very hard. So not only are Native Americans more likely to get the coronavirus, those who do get it are more likely to go to the hospital for it. That's right, and and there were there are reasons for that. Um, You know, many uh, disparities existed before the pandemic hit. Our diabetes rate is three times that of the general population. Uh, We've had high upper respiratory illness rates. Um, chronic diseases like cardiovascular disease, uh, all of these were exacerbated when the pandemic came around. So those who were already ill uh, were impacted even more. So you've been uh, acting director of the Indian Health Service since 2016, and you were confirmed as director actually right after I arrived. Um, uh, And uh, you had been waiting for a long time. And I know that everybody here in the building was just like having little celebrations of their own. If they weren't able to attend when you were sworn in, they were certainly proud of you. Um, and the, I remember the day after you were sworn in, it was the topic in the morning con- the morning meeting. Um, we're all very proud that that actually happened because I didn't know this, but you're the first one to serve as a confirmed director for quite some time, right? It has been a number of years uh, since Dr. Yvette Rubido um, uh, left, and we've had a series of actings. Uh, but it, it is definitely an honor to serve, and I'm proud to do so. It, it was a long probationary period. <laughs> so, but why? Can you talk a little bit about that? Why did that take place? I know we have a lot of political issues. People don't get confirmed for a lot of reasons. But across administrations, it's an. Was there? Did it feel like there wasn't a priority, or why? Why did that happen? It's very difficult to lead an organization if you're acting. Yeah, well, I I think that our agency faces many challenges. Um, Funding aside, uh, we have uh, been embroiled in a number of uh, quality of care issues and concerns. Uh, It's been impressed upon me by our tribal leadership the importance of maintaining the Indian Health Service as a nonpartisan entity that uh, we're able to move forward and really reinforce the special and unique political relationship between tribes and the U.S. federal government, that no matter who's in power in the federal government, we need to maintain a strong relationship. When were you made acting director? Uh, I was actually uh, made acting in June of 2017. To me... but that was a moment of pride for the whole organization. I thought it was very unusual. I, I, I was struck by it, that uh, there was just such a, uh, an immense feeling of pride to have you sworn in. Uh, because it seemed to me that a lot of the people, especially uh, in the secretary's office and around, saw it as a real victory. It was a real victory for, uh, for the United States, that, but also for the department and for the administration. Um, and uh, do you feel that it, that, it, that it actually enhances your ability to drive forward? 
You know, I, I do. Uh, be, before being confirmed, I I felt like I was in control, and and uh, but there was really uh, in the expressions from tribal leaders and other external stakeholders, there was this final finalization. You know, we we finally have um, signified um, place in the federal government. We now have our federal advocate confirmed. And that in itself says a lot about um, how um, Indian health system and, and the tribal health care uh, is prioritized uh, amongst other priorities here in D.C. So I, I do think that the confirmation meant a lot, uh, not only to me personally, but to all of Indian country. I, uh, I remember talking to the secretary that day or the day after, and he said it was especially significant because of COVID. I didn't know what he meant that day. Um, but then it became clearer and clearer uh, that the Native American community was suffering, was far more vulnerable than average uh, in the United States. And that it, you know, it became clear to me at that time that what the secretary meant was the Native American community is disparately impacted and therefore they need more than just acting leadership. They need the recognition from the federal level from the Nat, from Washington, that they that this crisis demands confirmed leadership. I I just COVID has been especially difficult for tribal communities. What do you see when you're out there? Yeah, well, I I see um, great leadership. Um, I, I think Navajo Nation is a great example where they implemented tribally driven public health orders early. Uh, 57-hour curfews where they locked down the borders and, you know, uh, encouraged mask wear early. Uh, they pointed to the, the difficulties in washing your hands when you don't have access to clean water. Right. Uh, that these are uh, items that need to be prioritized, and they existed again before the pandemic, uh, but uh, they've only exacerbated the problem. And it's not unique to, to Navajo. You go to Alaska, those same water access issues exist um it's i i think you know for example i i somebody from your office told me that well for example while many navajo people have access to modern day amenities there are some without running water and without you know modern bathroom facilities and some families actually may reside within multi-generational households it's these this congregate living that encourages spread isn't it and and if it's a right. if it's a cultural norm it, people are are having real difficulty you can't, and you and you can't wash your hands right and, and it's not all cultural granted it is uh, very much within our culture for multiple generations to live under one household but access to stable housing in in our rural reservation areas is is difficult so it is uh, one of those social determinants of health that we've been working on to partner with uh, uh, HUD and EPA and USDA and other federal partners to address these issues that have persisted for way too long in Indian country. Right. We think about the pastoral beauty of these communities, but you know, and and we we think about how the wide open spaces, and but we also you know, along with that, like rural America, some of the Native American communities lack the infrastructure or even the capacity available to deal with this pandemic. Uh, that we have in more densely populated areas. And, and 
We just don't think of that. Is, is that an increasing – I mean, how, how do we deal with that problem? Yeah, well, I think that there are some very specific things that we can do. And, and again, the variation across Indian country is huge. We have some tribes that uh, have the organizational capacity to do anything that you can dream of and others who really can't even afford to hire a grant writer. They may have a single administrator doing five different duties. Mm-hmm. So what Indian country needs is uh, uh, flexibility in the use of funds, um, not being required to compete uh, for for grants. Um why Why would you need a grant writer if you could just uh, have that money directly allocated to you in the same way that it is provided to states and, and other levels of government? So these are the asks of uh, tribal leaders is let's just put that funding into our Indian Health Service allocation, bring it to the community, and then allow for community-level decision-making since there is so much variation across our system. Let us decide what's best for our people. It's interesting, you know, I talked to a friend of mine who uh, is a filmmaker who uh, spends a lot of time in Indian country. Uh, and he said to me that uh, I was talking about how I was going to be talking to you on, on uh, Learning Curve. And he said, ask him this question. I, and so I have to ask now or I'm not going to get him to buy me a beer. <laughs> um, he said that the, the culture of Native Americans in many of the different tribes is different in every tribe, he said. Absolutely. That uh, the, the the doctor, the healer, is someone of great merit, and and that the the Native American culture treats them uh, differently than you know the the you know the average Americans do. We 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 love our family doctor, but you know even the way that uh, you know suburban America treats their doctors is very different than it was 50 years ago. But it's it's really still a position of honor in the Native American community, and that he he wanted me to ask you. If you spent 21 years in the Indiana Health Service, uh, did, how, how did how did you interact with your community? It must have been a, a pretty fantastic experience to to have, walk into a room and immediately have a modicum of respect that's due a healer. Well, you know, wearing this uniform um, and being a administrator is probably a little different from uh, the reception that a, a medicine man or a shaman or a you know, local um, traditional healer would receive. Uh, but um, I, I do appreciate the respect that I receive from our tribal communities. It's it's something that um, um, goes both with the uniform and, and with the position that I encumber. Uh, but I, I have had uh, traditionalists and um, healers in my family wow. uh, in Zuni, and, and very much they are respected and and revered and and people go to them for advisement and for ceremony and so there is a cleansing. difference there's definitely a difference yes, no, so, uh, <laughs> and the, the dividing line is the uniform right well yeah <laughs> well it's interesting because i think that you know there are different across generations and generations and generations the native american uh, uh culture they, they they they've approached medicine and and, and health care differently uh, than the, the suburban buffalo does, and uh, how, as a person who is pursuing, you know, pretty traditional uh, 
you know, the United States healthcare practices and bringing federal healthcare services into a community. Does, has it ever presented a challenge, you know, tradition, you know, Native American tradition versus, you know, uh, gold standard Ameri- what we consider gold standard American healthcare? That is a topic of frequent conversation within our system, uh, Western medicine versus traditional medicine, evidence-based versus practice-based. Um, I, I think uh, as an agency, we've done a really good job of integrating uh, the, the ability for our patients to seek care from either Western medicine providers or from traditional providers under under one roof, under our facilities. When it presents a challenge is when... Um, a ceremony is presented. Let's let's say a smudging ceremony, right. and say what is a smudging or, ceremony? So so that's when a natural substance like sage or cedar or sweet grass is burned and and the prayers are taken up, but it's meant to cleanse. Right. And um, so we have to turn off a certain portion of our uh, fire alarm when a traditionalist is in with a patient. Uh, so that that doesn't cause all kinds of other other right. unintended Sprinklers. consequences. <laughs> but our policies are developed to allow for the um, use of traditional medicine in in basically all of our facilities, and many of them actually have traditionalists on staff. Does it affect the the selection of treatments? Like, for example, somebody is offered a a drug versus a plant based remedy that's more traditional. Does it? How do you deal with those differences? Yeah, really, we we try to be patient-based, individualized medicine and taking a holistic approach. So we let the patient decide um, which form of treatment that they'd like to receive. If they specifically ask for a traditionalist, uh, we will do our best to make sure that that happens. Uh, But, you know, mainly we... um, perform Western medicine. Right. Do you have traditionalists in the Indian Health Service employ? We we do. Yes, That's in fact. Yeah. And spiritual healers, we have uh, chaplains. No way. Yes, sir. How, that's so interesting. <laughs> ah. Now, uh, w- tell me what you mean, the difference between evidence-based and practice-based medicine. Yeah, so evidence-based uh, is peer-reviewed. It's been uh, vetted, and, um, tried and true. So it's that scientific-based um, evidence. And practice-based is this is the way that our community has always done it. This is the way that our uh, healers have, over time, uh, gathered knowledge of the roots and the medicines that Mother Earth provides, and that that practice base, although not studied scientifically, um, has proven to heal people. Right. So it's it's the confluence, and you you know over time you can get that practice based medicine uh, reviewed, and perhaps through an FDA process. Really? Uh, but um, there is uh, there is a it's a beautiful. Uh, setting to to provide medicine in uh, that's great I, I think that's is there special like fda approvals that need to happen like we hear about the emergency youth authorization for emergency treatments for covid is there something that's routine and similar well you know i not that i know of, but we could just take one example of um, medical marijuana you, you know it's the components of uh that get fda's attention uh, so what is it in sage or what is it in sweetgrass or, or OSHA root that is the healing property that um, could be applied in a Western medicine sense? All right. Yeah.
let's get at this. I want to I, I want to talk about the federal response to COVID in your community that you serve in the Native American Alaskan tribes. We've had real significant resources uh, allocated through the Coronavirus Aid Relief and Economic Security Act. We call it the CARES Act um, to support the COVID-19 response across Indian country. I guess, in fact, you have actually allocated through the Indian Health Service $2.4 billion to IHS, tribal, and urban Indian health programs to prepare for and respond to the coronavirus. $2.4 $2.4 billion. That's a tremendous amount of resources. That's hard to actually imagine how you distribute that something so massive. Well, and keeping in mind there are 574 individual tribes and 2.6 million people that we're caring for uh, across the uh, diverse 37 states. Uh, so once you start to spread that money, um, the resources you know, aren't as grand as they they may sound. As many right. states have received much, much more than that. But that, it's a huge. It's just a huge lift it, it from a, a program time. management standpoint. Well, and it's definitely very much appreciated. We we appreciate Congress. We appreciate HHS and the White House making Indian Country a priority for funding, because it was very much needed. Um, we've been able to test uh, our population at a higher rate than the general population. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is vitally important since we're we've got these disparate impacts and we've had higher infection rates that we do test at a higher rate. Um, so we've also been made the recipient of the Abbott ID now. Yeah, I see that four hundred and seventy of those machines. Yes, and, and that's a lot. In many locations across our system, that is the only testing technology that we have, um, especially in places like the rural um, sites in Alaska. A health station, um, you know, somewhere where you can't get to by road or, or by boat that you actually have to fly in or snowmobile or hike. <laughs> and this is interesting because the Abbott ID Now system, people may not know that. Uh, this this gives you a result in, in minutes, like 20 minutes uh, in a COVID test that that just basically is a swab of your nasal passage. Um, and, and the Indian Health Service actually has 470 of these Abbott ID now rapid point of care analyzers all around at your sites. This is the same technology they use in the White House. That's right. I, I had to go through that same uh, swab uh, to get into the situation room with the president. You have to have a negative test before you get in the same room. <laughs> it is. It's true. I, I've had to go through it myself. And how does that go down? I mean, Admiral, how, how does it feel to be in the room with the president of the United States representing? the Native American community and something so vital as a as a pandemic that is disparately impacting, killing more Native Americans than average. What is that? It must feel like a really heavy weight to carry, to be in front the person for your community in front of the president like that. Absolutely, which is why it's vitally important that I'm vocal at every opportunity about the challenges that exist. And, um, you know, it, Definitely have made my family proud and sure. and our community members proud, uh, but it is uh, it is as I mentioned earlier a sacred trust responsibility that that um, Indian country not be forgotten. And yeah, you and I talked about this because I, I I haven't talked about this on on learning curve. But I've talked about it in the media a little bit. We're we're about to embark on a fairly sizable 
public health information campaign, like a public service announcement campaign, actually across many different platforms. Part of that, you and I discussed this, Admiral, is 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 polling people, uh, understanding what their attitudes are before we try to help them understand about COVID, uh, you know, uh, countermeasures, uh, vaccines, and et cetera. And we have to, in order to really understand, to, to get an understanding of what we, what different communities think, we have to get an understanding of what we should ask, even. They call it human-centered design. You and I talked about this, about how we need to pull the Native American community into not just, hey, go take a vaccine, but also to, to design the questionnaires that we ask and the and the town halls, you know, kind of settings where we have discussions. How important is it to get Native American voices into the actual planning of how to, for example, uh, encourage, uh, uh, discourage hesitancy on the vaccine? Yeah, well, well um, I'm going to approach this two ways. The first, uh, somewhat flippantly, is nothing for us without us. That's right. You've heard that. Uh, but the, our agency has a specific... Before we go on. Can you tell? Uh, I've heard this before. Nothing for us without us. What? What, right. what is that? Don't don't try to come in and fix us from the outside. Come in, learn about us, hear from us, and uh, let us make sure that you have a clear picture of what the situation is, and how best to communicate with our our community members, how best to treat our members, or you you need to know those local community norms, traditions, taboos. Uh, because each and every community is is a little different. Even, is this Native American saying of some, or something, or like a, a discussion in the community to help guide IHS? Where I've heard this before. Yeah, that's that's one that's used often, and, and it's typically used when it comes to research. Um, you know, nothing for us without us. Uh, make sure that you're including us. Make sure that we're engaged in every aspect of uh, the study or the research. Uh, I, I think the same could be um, really attributed to communications planning. The the unique thing um, about our agency is that we have a consultation policy, and it's written into our law that we must uh, consult with tribes uh, in advance of any significant decision being made uh, for funding, for policy, for regulation, uh, that we formally consult with the tribes and get their opinion and their advisement and recommendations before moving forward with implementing a decision. Nothing for us without us. I didn't mean to interrupt, but that's really profound. And it really is, it's actually broader. It should be driving everything we're doing for every community in the United States, but it's especially true of a, comp of a group like Native Americans who are so disparately affected. But I didn't mean to interrupt. You had a second yeah. point as well. Well, I just wanted to go over the legal sure. framework of consultation, which, which is written into our, our uh, Indian Health Care Improvement Act, our law. So the consultation is really, it's, it's actually codified. Absolutely. Yes, sir. Wow. I'm, I'm really going to enjoy uh, putting together this messaging and, you know, doing the research and bringing the input from the Native American community into at the very base levels of this public information campaign. You know, we talked about it, you and I, before about how you're one of our most trusted communicators. Probably not just because of your position, but your 21 years in the Indian Health Service and your 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 nature. You're 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 very bright. You're you're very open about helping people understand things. You're 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 soft spoken. People trust you. 
Do you think it's important for trusted Native American community leaders to be among those who are helping the Native American community understand what needs to happen next in order for the community and the nation to heal? Oh, absolutely. Uh, and we have so many great examples. Uh, you know, Billy Mills, who ran in the Olympics, uh, is a frequent speaker at many healthcare events. Uh, people listen to him. They they like the message that he brings, and they like the hope um, and, and his story. Uh, but we have uh, many other leaders throughout Indian country, um, and you don't have to be an elected tribal official to be a leader in Indian country to to sway um, perception. Right. So um, I think having individuals engaged in, in uh, public communication and uh, to be able to use their voice to influence, um, it, it, that would be vitally important and look forward to working with you on this project. As, I think as it's it going to be forward. great. I, I'm going to yeah. learn so much. I'm going to have to go on one of your trips with you. Oh, we'd love to have you. We should probably do, uh, uh, you know, one of those uh, kind of uh, sessions where we interview. Uh, we, uh, um, you know, right after we survey, do survey research, uh, we do focus group research to, to further hone the information we get from the broad survey of the vast population. Then we do focus groups. We should do a focus group with in a community of your choice that we, we, we can get some further input. Oh, that would be great. And, and again, that variation from Indian community to Indian community is so broad, but uh, would love to love to engage with you in that type of activity. And I think, I think we should. I think we should do it really soon. I think we should do it like within a couple of weeks. I'm, I'm going to talk to your office. I, I also wanted to mention one thing that we hear a lot about around here. And uh, I've had a lot of your time. I really appreciate it. Um, uh, it's, it's in case you uh, aren't familiar and you're just tuning in or you forgot, <laughs> uh, Rear Admiral Michael Wiaki is the head of the Indian Health Service, the first confirmed director of the Indian Health Service in many, many years here at the United States Department of Health and Human Services. And the, the Native American and uh, Alaskan tribal communities were disparately hit by COVID which is why, one of the reasons why I wanted the Admiral on uh, learning curve with me. But one thing that we've seen really very terrible things happen during a pandemic, but buried in these terrible clouds is always something. And we have discovered that telehealth is really, it's really emerged as something, an important thing, a capacity we built because we couldn't physically visit our doctors and oftentimes shouldn't have. So we were doing more and more telehealth. President Trump signed an executive order expanding access to telehealth services during COVID-19, especially in uh, rural communities. And this built on the work of uh, the CMS and, and such. How did telehealth impact Native American and Alaskan tribes? Well, the Indian Health Service has been using telehealth at some level for decades. However, when the pandemic hit, uh, we've been able to expand the number of visits by tenfold uh, from what we were doing uh, previously. Uh, so that's that's a great success story. We've, we've been able to ensure con continuity of care for uh, patients and keep our chronically ill outside of the hospital. You know, let's get them uh, prescription refills uh, without having to come in and potentially being exposed. 
we've been able to uh, utilize newer technologies to um, uh, communicate with people in their homes. Uh, so that that aspect's great. We do still have challenges, though, in Indian country. We, you know, being in some of the most rural, remote locations in the country, no internet access, broadband access. That's it's huge for us, and we we really do need to solve that that uh, problem. But you're making progress on that. We are making progress. Uh, I'd like to make quicker progress. Right. We don't want to be left behind, as the rest of the country is now uh, a proven concept that hey, this telehealth way of receiving care, not so bad. Um, We've got indications from the secretary and HHS that uh, they'd like to see many of the flexibilities that have been put in place temporarily remain permanent. Uh, we want to we want to stay on top of that wagon as well and uh, see if we can't ramp up even more than that tenfold. I think that tenfold can be uh, tripled and doubled, and um, we want to make sure that Indian country doesn't get left behind. We hear a lot about data uh, gathering. Um, and and uh, there's been they're, they're building out a whole new system of data gathering here in HHS with the help of CDC and in order to track COVID hospital data. Is it a particular challenge for IHS or is it better for IHS because you're already integrated so closely with the federal government? To I mean the reporting on hospital data yeah. on COVID. Well, uh, unfortunately for the Indian Health Service, we are at a little bit of a disadvantage because we're relying on an antiquated electronic health record. Uh, we use what's called the Resource Patient Management System, which was based on the Veterans Administration's uh, VISTA system. Uh, VA is moving off of VISTA, and they purchased a Cerner product. Uh, we actually need to modernize our electronic health record to be able to to report data in a more streamlined manner. Unfortunately, now we're we're doing a lot of manual manipulation, right. manual data calls, um, and many of our tribes who have taken over the um, uh, management operations of their healthcare facilities have made the investment to move on to um, commercial off-the-shelf systems that uh, have better reporting functionality. So many of them are in a better situation than we are as the federal government. Well, it's interesting because we need that data to distribute, for example, you know, countermeasures, uh, treatments. And uh, the Department of Health and Human Services uh, provided the Indian Health Service with access to 20,000 vials of remdesivir, uh, which is a, a leading treatment for COVID. And it's uh, being supplied to patients at 44 IHS and uh, tribal facilities across the country. And also the the, the, the the President's Coronavirus Task Force has said an additional 6,400 vials have been transferred to the IHS from the Veterans Administration. How do you distribute that without data at your fingertips? Yeah, well, fortunately, we have strong communication lines in our clinical um, uh, chief medical officer, clinical director um you guys have stood this up. That's been in existence for decades. It right? has been. And it's extremely strong because of the traditions of the IHS. That's right. That's right. And and we do use that clinical data to make these informed decisions about re where to uh, where to place our resources. Mm -hmm. uh, so those uh, patients who are hospitalized or in an intensive care unit who would benefit from rem remdesivir, uh, that information is raised through a local clinical director to an area chief medical officer to the national level, and, and those allocations are made. 
I, I wonder how being born in a in an IHS facility and spending 21 years in service to your community after your time in the Air Force serving this nation, how does it impact you to watch your community have 3.5 times more uh, chance of an infection, five times more chance of hospitalization? How has that impacted you? You know, there's a lot of people who work in public health who don't have that, you know, just core level connection to their community. What is it? What does it feel like to you to be in service to your community during such a dire and and exponentially more difficult uh, pandemic for your community? It is difficult. Um, not only the impact on our communities, even our own team, our Indian Health Service team, has unfortunately been uh, impacted with the deaths of some of our employees working You've on the front employees. lines. We have. Unfortunately, we have, and and every single one of those uh, deaths is it's family. What have you lost family as well? Have you lost friends I've, in the community? I have lost friends. I've lost close close um, coworkers, people who I know personally and have had uh, much dialogue with. Uh, my personal family. Uh, I have had a niece um, and um, several cousins who have fortunately. Uh, been impacted but have now recovered uh, but you know unfortunately many of our families out there uh, aren't as fortunate as I have been on the family front have you attended funerals I've attended a virtual uh, funeral I've not attended any in-person funerals and that's again another aspect of this pandemic that's just been heart-wrenching is our traditional way of doing things uh, our traditional ceremonies our traditional rituals we can't go forth with them and and that uh, is you're actually concerning. your community, the Native American community, is having trouble gathering for more than just funeral. It's and it's also kind of changing these rituals, isn't it? It is, and and for many tribes, uh, they feel strongly that the rituals that they are doing are cleansing the the world, the entire earth. Um, and so, what is the impact on? these rituals not being done to Mother Nature and, and to um, the greater environment. Um, you know, many, many tribes out there feel that if it wasn't for their rituals and their annual uh, ceremonial events, that the world would not continue uh, moving forward as it, as it should. So These rituals are very important, too. I mean, I mean, we see, you know, these political conventions are now being done a different way, and it's like, oh, look how interesting and different it is. But in reality, if you can't cleanse the earth, you, you don't do that on Zoom, right? Uh, what, how, what, kind of, what kind of impact does that have on the community to know, for example, that their relative passed away and they couldn't be given rituals they might have been given or would have been given? If it weren't for a pandemic, it's extremely hard. I mean, the not being able to do what all of your ancestors have been able to do um, for generations, for generations, for generations. We, we don't yet know what that impact is. You know, I, I would probably say that we're, we're going to see um, in hindsight that this is a significant trauma. Our American Indian populations have faced many traumas over the generations with 
forced removals and assimilation and uh, boarding schools. Um, we're sharing in this trauma with the rest of the world, um, but it is something that we're all going to have to deal with in, in how we provide care in the aftermath uh, with the related mental health and resiliency needs. We all talk about kids are going to be impacted. You know, my daughter graduated from high school in a parking lot, you know. Mm -hmm. She's probably going to go to college mostly, you know, remotely this semester like many people. <clears throat> but if you had anything at all to, to say as we end our discussion today to the mm -hmm. Native American Alaskan tribes about what's next. I mean, is there hope at, the, at this point in covid yeah, well, there's always hope, and that's the thing that we all need to do is to continue to look forward. And, and uh, we've proven as Native people that we're resilient or we would not still be here. And uh, this is the, the latest challenge, and it's a huge challenge, but we will get through it, and we will be stronger on the other side. Is there something to the Native American spirit, like the way that they deal with life every day and for many, many generations that— does it give them an advantage or a disadvantage in the COVID era? Well, I would, I would like to think so. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't know that, uh, you know, I have my own personal spiritual beliefs. Uh, I carry a Zuni fetish in my pocket every day, which is, uh, it's a bear. And it's meant to provide protection, strength. And anytime I'm feeling like... Uh, I'm down or, you know, something's impacting me. I'll just feel and remember and... and Put uh, your hand on your pocket. Right. And and this is something that was provided to me from my family um, as a reminder. Uh, anytime that you're in that situation, remember where you came from. Right. Remember what is expected of you and your responsibilities. And um, we'll always be here. Faith in your um, ancestors and your heritage, hope for the future. Absolutely. And there are many people standing behind me uh, wanting uh, and relying on me to succeed. We're all relying on you. We really are. Rear Admiral Michael Wiaki, who is the an enrolled member of the Zuni tribe, director of the Indian Health Service, serving millions of Native Americans and uh, Alaskan Natives. Thank you very much, Admiral, for spending time with us here on Learning Curve. I'm Michael Caputo, Assistant Secretary for Public Affairs at the Department of Health and Human Services. Learning curve, we try to do it every week. We'll have somebody in almost as interesting as Admiral Wiaki <laughs> next week. Have a great week, everybody. Stay safe. Produced by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services at taxpayer expense.